The first reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, starting on in the 12th verse. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For I have found favor in, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Second reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 8, starting with the fifth verse. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me too. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Have you prayed for anyone this week? It's kind of a, most people probably have in some way. You may have prayed for yourself. Um, but even in some of the lines that we can draw in, in faith, 
it, it is often the case that somebody would say, well, I, you know, I've really prayed for that person or cried out to God. If you prayed for anyone this week, then you took up prayers of intercession. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in our series, 100 Days of Prayer. Uh, it was great to have a gathering this past Monday night and see uh, people come together here and as part of the visioning of this church. And so we move from, what have we done, prayers of blessing, deliverance, thanksgiving, praise, healing, I'm probably missing something else, uh, and now prayers of intercession. So I'd like you to try this, this little metaphor to guide you. Nicola talked about the beauty of the last couple of weeks. It is quite stunning out there. The light is so different at this time of year, right? And sometimes the trees just seem to be lit up from inside. And, uh, I mean, I go for bike rides right around Stanley Park, and there's down by kind of where it gets pretty busy by the aquarium and stuff. You come around this corner by what's that called, Dead Man's Island or something there? You know what I mean, right? So before the 9 o'clock gun, and then there's this one tree there right now that is so lit up. Uh, it's absolutely stunning. And you look and you think, how can there be that many leaves on one tree? And how can they all fall? So here's the image I want you to have as we go through this. I want you to picture yourself walking down Grand Boulevard or somewhere, somewhere where you go for walks, and you see one small leaf. And just to focus on that for a moment, and then consider if you could look up and see the tree from which it came, and make that a big tree, okay? And then just think, oh, I had no idea. This, this little thing is so beautiful. But there is this whole world, and that's just one tree. That's the metaphor I want you to hold as we talk about intercession. Because I can say something like, and ask something like, have you prayed for someone this week? And that's good, if you have. And it's good to receive prayer as well. But what I'd like to do in this time we have together is to get you to two places. One... I'd like you to be inspired to pray more for other people. Prayers of intercession. Now, the other side of that is that you would receive prayer more often. Maybe here at the back after a service or ask somebody to pray for you. So first, to be inspired to pray more. And then secondly, to understand how prayers of intercession are part of our bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, that this isn't just an activity that you take up but this is a sign of the kingdom of God in its fullness. Prayers of intercession. So I think of it like kind of stepping stones from here to there. So now I'm mixing metaphors or adding another. But that you would kind of go, oh yeah, I can pray for people. I can receive prayer. And then as you listen this morning to what I have to say, that you're able to go, oh, this whole world of intercession is a whole lot bigger than I often think. And you humble yourself. If you go back early in Scripture, one of the most important stories and motifs and events, obviously, in Scripture, is the, del- sorry, the deliverance of the people of God from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land, led by, and you know who, by Moses, who was a reluctant leader at best. He was a little bit reluctant about leading in general. He was more reluctant about speaking. And so God signed up his brother Aaron. You remember that. And Moses, it's interesting because as we join this story, as what was read for us this morning, uh, that takes place around the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that takes place in, geographically, in a place called Sinai. And Moses had been there before. 
but by himself, without all these tons and tons of people, with his family. In fact, he met his wife there. He'd been in the middle of nowhere because he was a fugitive from justice in Egypt because he'd taken the life of an Egyptian, identifying with his own people. He realized that those slaves were his own people. And then in Sinai, he has this encounter with this burning bush, right? And you remember the story that it says Moses was tending to his business as taking care of animals, and then he turned aside to see this thing. It's an important thing. If he hadn't turned aside, maybe he would have missed the burning bush. And that represents the presence of God. And it's this encounter with God where God says, I've heard the cries of my people, and speaks about Moses being one who will help lead them out. By the time we join this scripture reading that's been read for us this morning, they're back around that same area, around this mountain, and God is giving the Ten Commandments. It's after the golden calf, which is not their best of all moments, and soon they will be told to leave Sinai. And this section that has been read for us can be titled often in your Bibles, Moses' Intercession. It follows from chapter 32, when Moses is on the mountain. That mountain represents also God's holiness. There were good warnings, tons of warnings. Don't let the people go near the mountain. Remember that? But Moses could go up, and he received God's law there, these Ten Commandments. And God says, while this is happening, and there's quite extensive passages on that, but God says, he almost interrupts Moses, and says, Moses, you better get down there. Such a great scene. You better go back down, because it's insane down there right now. And when Moses goes back down, of course, what's happened is they have... They're getting upset because they think God's presence is represented by Moses in a way, and he's been gone for so long that they think, well, he's abandoned us, therefore God's abandoned us, and you know what happens next, right? We better make new gods. And so they make this golden calf, and God says, you better get down there. But it continues. God is quite upset. He actually says to Moses, you should get down there to your people and see what your people have done. And he says, these are your people who you led out of Egypt. I was listening to Ken's sermon on the same passage this morning, and he he rightfully said, pronouns are really important here. God says, your people, you led them out of Egypt. Moses later will say, God, you can't wipe these people out because these are your people, and you led them out of Egypt. They're both playing this same game. But somehow in this, there is what comes to us to be known as intercession. God says, I'm done with the people. I've seen these people. They are stiff-necked. It's still, I'm not saying you need to like revive the term stiff-necked. I don't know that people would like you that much if you used it, but it's a great term because stiff-necked just means like I'm just thinking like that direction that I'm going and nobody else is going to invade my sense of the world. They're stiff-necked. And then God says this, Let me alone with them. Isn't that something? It's not comforting at this point. Let me alone with them that I might let my anger burn against them. The let me alone is a place here for intercession. And Moses says, you shouldn't do that. And Moses objects to God's frustration and puts himself in the place between the people and God. And he says, these are your people. 
if you wipe them out, can you imagine what they would say in Egypt? These people were led by their God only to be slaughtered, only to be gone. And God, that doesn't really give you a good name. There's a counter to this, and part of it's in Exodus here, and part of it is told in a different book of the Bible, Numbers. Moses himself becomes frustrated with the people at various times on this same journey. And he says, these people are nuts. I don't want to lead them. They say things constantly like, this guy is a terrible leader. He's led us into this wasteland. And then they do this. I, I just put this out there for you to reflect on the various ways we can do the same kind of thing. This person is a terrible leader. He's led us out here. And then they do this fantastically nuts thing. They say, it used to be so much better in Egypt. Now, you might not add the last two words, but translate it for yourself. It used to be so much better in Egypt because there we had all the food we wanted. And there we sat around in luxury, which is none of that is true. But their memory is skewed. So Moses said, they're always complaining. They don't do what I asked them to do. And they say things like that. So Moses said, I'm done with these people. You've put me in leadership, but you left me alone here. And he goes further, and he doesn't say, wipe them out. He says, if you're going to have me lead these people, wipe me out. (laughs) It's a different answer to the same solution. Why have you done this to me, Moses said. These are your people. I, I look at how this reflects Job, God's speech to Job at the end. And Moses says here, these are your people. I didn't give birth to them. Where am I supposed to get meat for them? How am I supposed to answer their complaints and their objections? This all in Numbers 11. And God then seems to put himself between Moses and the people. And he calls up leaders so that Moses isn't alone. Moses Moses does intercede for the people in one case. And in another, God seems to be interceding for those same people. As has been read for us, Moses before God, as he speaks about the people, says, look, I need this from you. If I'm going to lead these people, I need this. You need to show me your ways. I need, because they'll, their incessant grumbling will kill me unless I see your glory. Now, I want you to hold the concept of what seeing God's glory might look like because we should know as Christians what seeing God's glory would look like. And it's often different, or it's different than we would often consider. It's an important part of intercession, and there's a whole world in this. But one of the things I'd like to consider is um, what does it tell us about the worthiness of those for whom we should intercede? Who ought we to intercede for? Well, the answer is pretty easy, right? Who, who do you intercede for in your life? You might intercede for people who are sick. You pray for people who are sick. You pray for family, for friends, for your own communities in which you're gathered. But of course, the answer is we should intercede for everyone. Worthiness doesn't come into question. I think that too often 
our posture in the world. I'm not saying in this congregation, or in, but in, in faith in general, and often in religion. The posture in the world can be opposition to the world, complaint, danger, warning, frustration. And sometimes, I remember when I used to listen to talk radio more, and you'd hear people phone in and give their opinions on various things, and sometimes you'd hear someone come in, call in and identify themselves as a Christian, say on CKNW or something, and you're like, okay, is this going to be good or is this going to be bad? And often it was good, but sometimes you'd hear, and they were really upset at something, and you'd hear, well, I'll pray for you. But it didn't seem really encouraging. It seemed like a threat. In other words, I'll pray for you because there's one thing we know. I'm right and you're wrong. So I will pray for you that you will be enlightened like I am. And oftentimes the person who was being prayed for would say, no, thank you. They see through some of it. So intercession is not about opposing people. And I get a little bit tired in my faith sometimes, and this might be more in the media. I don't mean the media's fault, but I mean what gets portrayed because it is out there. But I get a bit tired of us sometimes assuming that the loudest, angriest Christian is the most Christian. Like the one who stands against things somehow gets to play the card of, I'm the most Christian. How do we intercede for people? And who's worthy of this intercession? We ought to be asking and seeking to learn not how to stand against, but how to stand for. Bring before God. Matthew chapter 8, which was read for us, is another scene of intercession. And you have this centurion coming before Jesus Christ in intercession for the servant. And then pronouncing that he understands that Jesus Christ is able to accomplish this healing. All you need to do is say the word. You don't even have to come and be with this servant. And another stepping stone, we didn't read it, but in the next chapter, Matthew 9, there's another scene of intercession. The healing of the paralytic. This one you can kind of hold in your mind, right? Because if you think about intercession, this is just such a beautiful, perfect Sunday school picture. Jesus speaking to a gathering of people in some kind of house or and there's a roof that can be taken apart. You know the story, right? And these friends of this paralyzed man bring him and tear a hole in that roof because they can't get close to Jesus and they lower him in front of Jesus. And Jesus, upon seeing this individual, does not say first, you're healed and you can go and walk. He says, your sins are forgiven. The man doesn't express repentance of sins. It's a bit of a picture of what Ken was preaching about last week uh, when he rightfully and skillfully pointed out that healing is always more than physical. It can be about physical, but never only physical. And Jesus knows that in that scene. This is a beautiful picture of intercession. In James chapter 5, again, I thought of this as I was listening to Ken's sermon earlier this week. James James chapter 5 is one of these portions of Scripture, you might remember it, where that line that stands out for people is, is any one of you sick? Then you should call the elders and get them to come and pray, and then you will be, in some translations, say healed. That's actually not the right word. The proper word is saved. In ESV it says saved. In some other translations it says healed. 
But sometimes we think, well, all we need to do is get the elders to come and pray and anoint us with oil, which we should do, and even pray for our healing, including our physical healing. But the text is not a promise that you will be physically healed. The text is a promise that something even better will happen. In fact, if you go just a few verses before, the very, the very section before that in James says is, is labeled patience in suffering. And then it talks about this view of healing. But this is intercession. And finally, Romans chapter 8. Why intercede? Why pray for healing? To do better? To get something? So I'm going to intercede for you, hoping that whatever it is that you're dealing with, illness, right, frustration, difficulty of some kind, that that will be removed. But of course, intercession is always much bigger than that. I am interceding for you in order that you might be brought into the presence of God, that you might know that you are in the presence of God. How much better is that? In Romans chapter 8, we're told, and this is big, that intercession is very much part of God's character. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, we're told in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. If you just go from this place now, can I ask you to try to remember that? The Holy Spirit of the living God intercedes for you. What might that mean to you? It's hard to imagine. Intercession doesn't start something. You always join an ongoing prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the great intercessor. Hebrews chapter 7 puts it in in the imagery from the Old Testament, that Jesus is what? Jesus is our great high priest. He intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And we've seen how God himself often says, no, no, to people like Moses, don't get too frustrated with these people. In the end, there's a question. Oh, I got through all of that really quick without... This is the question before us in the world. So you think about this for yourself and you think about this for people who claim the name Jesus Christ, for those who don't yet know Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. For those who are suffering in the world. For those that you would reach out to. Here's the question. Is God in our midst? That's what the people in the book of Exodus were wrestling with in these days those days when Moses was up the mountain. They couldn't imagine, they couldn't remember, they couldn't let it sink into who they were, that God was in their midst. Is God in our midst? Of course, in Christian faith, and my faith in Jesus Christ, we'll declare what? That not only is God in our midst, but Jesus Christ has taken my place. He has interceded for me. And I stand before the Father not in my own strength, but in the saving love of Jesus Christ. He has taken my place. 
Is God in our midst? If God is not in our midst, then there is no reason for intercession. There's no one to intercede towards. The question in the desert is how could God be here in this place? And then what happens are these perverted memories. Things used to be better in Egypt. But when you begin to see God in your midst, or when you are carried by the faith of someone else who's able to declare God in your midst, even though you can't envision that right now, I can't see how God could be present in this in my life. And somebody says, I'll pray for you. In the wilderness, as people in this desert, as people were asking, is God even present here? They were learning. And what they were learning is how to ask this question. Is God in our midst? Because if they couldn't answer it in the desert, then how are they going to answer it in the promised land, right? And it's the question for our world. And it's a fair and valid question. And how would you say that most answer? Most people that you know, if you were to ask them, is God in our midst, how would they answer? And what do you do if they say, no, I don't believe God is in our midst? Do you then become their opponent? What did Jesus do? What would we do about those who do not believe? Haven't seen? We intercede. We intercede. Would you join this prayer of intercession? Consider... I understand I'm saying this in, in, in a small kind of box, this next statement, but there's truth in it. Consider that it is not, first of all, important that they believe. It is, first of all, important that you do and you intercede on their behalf. The world needs your faith. So Moses says to God, I can only do this if you show me your ways, if you show me your glory. And any undertaking in this world in light of what God has done for you, I think everybody could say the same thing. I just, as I said that, thought of Himalayan life. Because I've been there and seen just a small bit of it and didn't get all the behind-the-scenes stuff that has to be dealt with. But I can tell you this, there's no way that could be done unless, Lord God, would you show us your ways. And when you ask God, show me your glory, what is the fullness of the glory of God? Powerful signs in the sky, loud supernatural declarations. We know what the glory of God is. It's Jesus Christ. That's how you see God's glory. You look to Jesus Christ. And I would say in this world, and many can be frustrated, but it is for me to be able to say, to seek, is God in our midst? And I would say, yes. God is in our midst. And so then I can intercede. I can make a list of names. And sometimes people battle with, like, how do you pray for somebody else? Sometimes, honestly, it's okay. Just say a list of names. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for Heidi Kuban this morning. Add names to the list. Because you're joining an ongoing prayer. You don't have to make it happen. Will you intercede for your loved ones, for your friends, for your church and your community and this world 
even for those who would think that they're in opposition to you, why ought you intercede? Because it's what Jesus Christ has done and is doing for you. And this is what marks that, that he has given his life for the life of the world. He came and denied himself and his standing, and he took up his cross and he intercedes for us And our intercession is not only to pray for one another, which is good in and of itself, but our intercession is to bear witness that God is in our midst. This is the incarnation. So first, before we turn to communion, listen to this song that uh, speaks of the depth of such self-giving, such intercession and incarnation from Jesus Christ our Lord.